When my dad was teaching me how to shoot, it wasn't so much for fun, although it was a lot of fun. It was a necessity. The seasons had turned dry and then the roos had just get really thick on the wheat and give it an absolute hammering and every night we'd have to go out in the old EH Holden Ute and thin them out a bit and having a bit of fair, fair bit of pride I actually like to shoot them in the head but dad always said just shoot them in the chest haven't got time for that fancy stuff whatever you do don't shoot them in the guts it takes too long and it's too cruel but, but you shoot them in the chest and they'll die every time you see in your chest is your heart and your lungs, uh, all of the biggest of your arteries and veins, your spinal column and spinal cord, your liver and kidneys, a chest wound, a penetrating chest wound, is always likely to be fatal. And that's why armour, and it doesn't matter what sort of armour it is you're talking about, is usually designed so that it will in some way protect the upper torso. Bulletproof vests are designed to protect the chest. Um, the breastplate that you find on many types of armour, being either medieval armour or ancient armour, that could be made out of iron, bronze or thick leather, they're all designed to protect mainly the upper torso. Because if you get hit by a, by a sword or an arrow or a spear in the chest, well, you don't keep going for very long. It's not very long and you'll be out of the fight. and Because you very quickly bleed out or if you get stabbed in your lungs, then you eventually drown in your own blood. Now, I hope that introduction hasn't been too ghastly. Um, some of you might have found it ghastly. But battle is a ghastly business. And um, protection against chest and upper abdomen wounds is critical. And so when, when we're talking about the breastplate in armour, this is a critical piece of armour. And we're learning about the second piece of God's armour, the breastplate of righteousness. And just as the Roman soldier had his breastplate, it was to protect him from arrow, sword and spear, we Christians, well, we're in a, we're in a spiritual battle and we need to protect our hearts too. And we do this with the breastplate of righteousness. Verse 14 says, Stand, therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth. And we talked about the belt of truth last week. And having put on the breastplate of righteousness. And what does that mean, to put on righteousness? I mean, we don't usually talk, talk about putting on something like righteousness. We talk more about, okay, be righteous or, or, or value righteousness or, or whatever. What does it mean to put on righteousness? Well, three months ago, to the day actually, we were in Ephesians chapter 4 and I gave a message on transformed and living as the transformed people that we are. When you become a Christian, when you repent of your sin and ask for the forgiveness of God and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, what happens? Well, all of the accumulated sin, every bad thing that you've ever done, your past wrong attitude toward God, every evil thought, every vile action, every bitter or profane word, all of this is just taken away. Your history, your, your record of guilt is expunged. It's like God hits the delete button on the memory of all of your sin. And all this happens because at the cross of Christ an amazing exchange takes place. All of our sin flows to Christ. 
He took every bit of our sin on the cross. But it's more than that. That's, that's what a lot of us, we tend to think, okay, all God, Jesus died on the cross, he took away all my sin. And we think of it as a one-way exchange. But it was actually a two-way exchange. We, our sin goes to Christ and he dealt with that. But from Christ, he gives to us his righteousness. The righteousness of Christ flows to us. Now, imagine you've worn the same outfit for three years straight. Some of you might not know. I'm sure you all have to imagine. Um, and you haven't had a shower in that time for three years, right? Did I say three months? Three years. Three, three years. You've worn the same clothes three years straight. You haven't had a bath for three years. Um, and so you're pretty grotty, okay? You're covered with mud and grease and grime and if we've got kids, we've probably got poo and, and spew and stew on us as well. It's just gross. But then somebody says, look, I'm, I'm going to clean you up now. And so you take off your filthy clothes. You have a really long shower, probably with some kind of caustic soap. And then you dry off, but you don't put those same clothes back on again. You've got a brand new cleaned and ironed set of clothes to put on. Well, that's an image of what it's like when we come to Christ. He takes off our sin, he cleans us up, he makes us spotless, he makes us righteous, and then he gives to us his righteousness to put on. And so in God's sight, God doesn't see us as we were. God doesn't look and see our past sin. What he sees is the righteousness of Christ. And so sometimes we might start thinking, well, how is it that God could ever love me? I'm just not good enough. Well, you know how he loves you? When he looks at you, he sees his son. He sees the righteousness of his son. See, no matter how hard I try to do the right thing, I could never be good enough to be in, a presen- in the presence of a holy God. E- even if God, God was good enough to forgive me and take away my sin... I'm still not good enough to be in the presence of a holy God. Because to be in his presence, I have to be righteous. And the only way that I can be righteous is to receive the righteousness from Christ. So clothed in the righteousness of Christ, he welcomes us with open arms. And and he, he welcomes us as his pure and holy children. But in Ephesians... To put on righteousness is more than that. It begins with that. It begins with God forgiving us our sin. It begins with him, we call it imparting, him putting on to us the righteousness of Christ. But it's more than that. It is also a personal righteousness. It is the uprightness of our character. And hence the message three months ago, transformed, that's what God does, he transforms us and living as the transformed creatures that we are. God doesn't clean us up so we can just go and wallow in the mud again. He cleans us up, he transforms us into something better so that we can live as this holy people that that he has created us to be. God has shifted us from unrighteousness to righteousness and therefore we should live 
as the transformed creatures that we are. In Ephesians chapter 5, Paul actually said to the Ephesians, he said, be imitators of God. And we've heard that come up over and over again as we've been working our way through Ephesians. Be imitators of God. And of course we imitate God by living righteous lives. By the way, in Isaiah chapter 59, God himself is described as putting on the breastplate of righteousness. Did you know that some of the pieces of armour are actually talked about in Isaiah? They are. We find in Isaiah the, the breastplate of righteousness. We find the helmet of salvation. We also find the gospel of peace. The good news of peace. Um, all in, in Isaiah. And so in Isaiah 59 is where we find the breastplate of righteousness and the helmet of salvation and it's God himself who are putting them on. And so when we put on righteousness and when we put on the helmet of salvation, we're imitating God. Be imitators of God. So that was really the the lesson in a nutshell of three months ago. What's different about this part of the letter? Is Paul just repeating himself? Well, no, he's not repeating himself. Paul is summing up the letter. Um, That's why it's coming up again. But more than this, he's actually trying to get us to understand the spiritual significance of the battle between righteousness and wickedness. It's interesting, you know, in, in Isaiah chapter 59... The reason that God is putting on his breastplate of righteousness and his helmet of salvation is because of all the evil that's going on in society. Forces at work in society had set out to ruin and to prey upon anyone who shunned evil. Um, It had started out, and it always starts out this way, um, society targeting those who, 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 um, who draw to their attention the things that society are doing wrong. So that's what the prophets would do. The prophets would speak out and say, you, you, this is evil what you are doing um, and God will not put up with this. And of course when the prophets start saying this, they start getting hammered. But society had gone beyond that and it had begun to prey upon anybody who merely did the right thing. On a personal level, when anyone chose to do the right thing instead of doing the wrong thing, that made them a marked man or a marked woman. And God looks around and he sees all of what's going on. He says, who can stand against this? Who can step in and make it right? And there was no one. And so he says, righto, well, I'm the man. I'm the one. And so he puts on his breastplate of righteousness and his helmet of salvation. He steps in to make it right. I might actually read it to you. Isaiah chapter 59, verses 14 to 17. Justice is turned back and righteousness stands far away. For truth has stumbled in the public squares. Now the public squares, think of, there was a couple of functions of the public squares. That was where business used to happen, like the markets and that sort of thing. But it was also the law courts. That's where the judges would hear the cases publicly, in the public squares, and they would make their judgments. Right? And, and it says here, righteousness stands far away. Truth has stumbled 
in the public squares. We, I guess we see that sometimes in our own law courts, don't we? And uprightness cannot enter. Truth is lacking. And he who departs from evil makes himself a prey. Yahweh saw it and it displeased him that there was no justice. He saw there was no man and wondered that there was no one to intercede. Then his own arm brought him salvation and his righteousness upheld him. He put on righteousness as a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on his head. He put on garments of vengeance for clothing and wrapped himself in zeal as a cloak. What forces could possibly be at work that anyone who is doing the right thing is made a target? And that's what today's reading is about. The schemes of the devil, spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realm, target the righteous. But strangely enough, it's our righteousness that protects us. I was sort of thinking about this. You know, yeah, okay. It's, it's our righteousness. We're targeted because of our righteousness, but it's our righteousness that protects us. And I guess I started thinking about, you know, like sort of maybe, maybe an army tank or something, right? It's its armour that protects it, but they know that this army tank's going to wreak a lot of havoc, so they have to concentrate fire on that army tank to try and try and um, get it out of action but it just keeps powering on because it's protected and that's what our righteousness is like when you're the only one at a party not getting drunk and, and everybody else starts to mock you that's an attack of the evil one when it seems that everybody else is sleeping around and those who wait for marriage are seen as abnormal that's a spiritual battle when it seems you're excluded from the group because you don't join in on the filthy talk, that's a spiritual battle. When society says that sexual perversion is normal and, and those who re- then reject that are charged under the Anti-Discrimination Act, that's a spiritual battle. When Bible teachers who preach the truth and, and reject the validity of other religions subsequently get charged under the Religious Vilification Act, that's a spiritual battle. See, we could look at all these things and go, what's going on? Why is it when people do the right thing, they get targeted? It's this spiritual battle. Back in chapters 4 and 5, Paul gave us a few examples of those things that are incompatible with righteous living. And when I say a few, it just goes on and on. Falsehood, persistent anger... Theft, unwholesome talk, bitterness, rage, anger, brawling, slander, malice, unforgiveness, sexual immorality, any kind of impurity, greed, obscenity, foolish talk, coarse joking, drunkenness, debauchery. And all of these, there's a lot of them, but they're just examples. It's not a definitive list. It's not a list that we live by and go, all right, well, I haven't done that. Good, I'm good with God. Oh, I haven't done that one. Good, I'm good with God. It's not a definitive list. The call to discipleship is to take off unrighteousness in all of its forms and to put on righteousness. It's not a legalistic list of do's and don'ts. It's a recognition that we are no longer what we once were. 
We once used to be a child of the devil. We were sold out as slaves to sin, but that's not what we are anymore. We're free from sin. You're no longer a child of the devil, you're a child of God and you're covered in the righteousness of God. And that's the way we love it. But the devil hates it. The devil wants it back the way it used to be. The devil wants Christians to get caught up in sin again. And you know why? Because it makes God look bad and it leaves us weak and vulnerable. The boss I had before I went to Bible college was not a Christian. Um, But he, like most people in the world, observes and discerns the character of those around him. And whenever he saw a Christian who said one thing and said, yeah, I believe in Jesus, but then they lived unrighteous lives, well, then he used to let me know about it. eh? We probably all know people like that. But he had every right to, to let me know about it. Because as Christians, we shouldn't just be Christians in name and status only, we should also be Christians in our behaviour. When those who profess to be Christians live unrighteous lives, that makes God look bad. What would you say is the biggest issue that damages the credibility of the Christian church in Australia today? What's the biggest issue? Well, pretty high on that list would have to be the the abuse of children by leaders within the church and particularly clergy. Also pretty high on that list would have to be greed and opulence of, of the institution or greed, once again, of its pastors or leaders, ministers. Something else that gives God a bad image would have to be adultery or fornication within the church. All of these things reflect badly on God. You know, some schools expel their students for behaviour committed outside of the school. Why? Because they represent their school everywhere they go. Particularly if they're in school uniform. We represent Christ wherever we go. You don't just represent Christ at church. You don't just represent Christ at Bible study. You represent Christ wherever you go. In the, in the toughest and, and most awful of situations, you represent Christ in those places. In good times and fun times, You represent Christ in those places. Everywhere you go, everything you do, you represent Christ. And what you do will either glorify God or bring his name into disrepute. And that's why Paul said back in chapter 4 verse 30, do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God. Sometimes we sort of think, oh, how do I grieve God? Well, well, it's easy. All we've got to do is read all around that, past, around that statement, do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God. And it's all talking about how we should no longer live how we once were. Instead, we should now be living in righteousness. And when we live in unrighteousness, that grieves the Holy Spirit of God. 
So, is it really that important? Does it really matter if I'm not the most saintly person in the world? Does it really matter if I let off a few F-bombs when I'm amongst people who, do, who swear? Does it really matter if I you know, have a few too much and a few too many and get a bit drunk? Does it really matter if I, if I sleep with my girlfriend? Does it really matter if I cheat on my tax? Does it really matter... Let's look at it this way. Would you stand in the front line staring at the enemy lines before you? Their archers have knocked their arrows and they have their bows drawn and they're pointing in your direction. Their infantry have their swords sharp and they're they're wielding them ready to advance upon you. What madness would possess somebody to say, gee, I find this this breastplate really uncomfortable. It just restricts me so much. I think I might take it off for a little while. Yeah, I've still got my helmet, I've still got my sword, I've still got my shield. Do I really need this breastplate thing? What madness would possess someone to do that when you recognise the enemy lining up to attack you. Would you really take it off and leave your heart vulnerable? When disciples of Christ neglect their personal righteousness, yeah, we know God will forgive us, but when we neglect our personal righteousness, that leaves us weak. It leaves us vulnerable and it leaves us open to the attacks of Satan. Mighty men of God, powerful preachers and evangelists, men who have had done amazing things for God, have been taken out. They've been taken out of the battle because they've weakened for, with greed, lust or power. The devil, one of his names is the accuser. He accuses us before the throne of God. Now someone once said, if you throw enough mud, some of it's going to stick. Well, let me tell you, accusations can only stick if they have substance. If accusations don't have any substance to them, they ultimately can't stick. But if there's any hint, any slightest bit of uncertainty, any slightest bit of substance to those accusations, they stick. When Satan lies in his accusations against you, it won't stick because the breastplate of righteousness guards you against those accusations. You hear what I'm saying? If somebody says a bad word about you and an accusation comes against you, if it is known that, no, no, this person has not done this, they are righteous in this, those accusations don't stick. But if we sort of give little hints of it, if there actually is a bit of credibility in what's being said, then yeah, it might stick. 
the guilt gets to you and you get taken out of the battle. The spiritually weak and wounded are no threat to the devil. The righteous are. Because when the people of God live by the righteousness of God, they are a spiritual force to be reckoned with. And my prayer for this church is that we would be a people who are characterised by righteousness. My prayer is that we would be a people who love God, a people who know that they are made righteous through what Christ has done for us on the cross, but a people who are committed to living as a transformed people that they are. People who live righteous lives, who are characterised by this righteousness and so are people who are able to stand strong for God in his service. Only what's pure, nothing corrupt is allowed in my heart. I guess that's the attitude that we need to take because it does matter.